Welcome to the New Zealand General Practice Podcast. This is an opportunity to share stories about the valuable work done by family doctors in their communities and to explore what sustains them and their teams. In this episode, I'm talking to Lucy O'Hagan, author, actor, and GP. In her 2017 Eric Elder address to the College of GPs, she asked, what stories do we need to speak even stutteringly to create a new narrative for general practice? How about I hear about you, the new me? How about we embrace the diversity of doctors' stories in this room? Which is just so beautiful and I think what this podcast is all about. Welcome to the New Zealand General Practice Podcast, Lucy O'Hagan. I'm so pleased to be talking to you. I've heard you speak at a, a, a few conferences and we've met over the years a, a, a couple of times uh, and I'm, I'm excited uh, to be having this opportunity to spend a little bit of time with you. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your, and your practice, Lucy. Um, well, it's lovely to be here, Joe. and I think that we have both been rural GPs, and that's how we first met, because I was in Wanaka for 20 years. I think you yes. were in Hawtake, yeah. Yes, yes, that's right. So, um, so I left my rural practice about five years ago, and um, have since then been in Dunedin, and in Dunedin I've been teaching GP registrars and... Um, doing quite a lot of writing about being a GP and um, I work one day a week at a needle exchange service which has has had a free clinic running for about 25 years which is fascinating and quite a different clientele to Wanaka so it's been quite a steep learning curve and um, very interesting as to you know what our role is and that sort of group of people who might be homeless or who've had very kind of complex, traumatised lives with drug addiction and incarceration. and They're great characters, though. I mean, yeah. honestly, you have the best conversations. And um, then I also worked at, uh, when it first opened at Takaika, which is the first um, low-cost centre in Dunedin, um, which is 60% Māori Pacifica. Mm-hmm. That's been a really fantastic place to work as well. Um, and again, very different to Wanaka. And and it's been, like it has been amazing to go from being a practice owner in a, well, in a, a fairly affluent practice to working in high needs practices where, you know, the level of need isn't even on the same scale. It's absolutely incredible, the ill health, the mental ill health, the poverty, the kind of, um, and I don't think, I think we can talk about inequity till the cows come home, but we're not putting the money there. You need a lot more money to serve that population. Yeah. I don't think we've got the data to show that, but I can tell you from working in the two different places, it's not one and a half times the funding. We got completely sidetracked. Not at all. Not at all. No, it's the, the uh, and I, I, it's really, it is really interesting having been in one community for a long period of time, that shift from, from, from one place to another, the, the, um, did you find that uh, challenging to your professional identity at all? 
Oh, well, I think that um, what I didn't expect when I left my practice of 20 years was grief. Yeah. The absolute loss and grief. And, you know, as doctors, we like to think that it's all one way, that we are serving the patients. But in fact, we, it's a two-way thing. We're getting something out of it too that we don't acknowledge. And it's some incredible intimacy, I think. I think intimacy is the right word, actually. Mm. Of course, we don't want to take that word too far, but it is very, um, uh, and so it, it was very, what was very strange is that I actually still lived in the community for another year, so I would see my patients all the time yeah. but in a public setting, but I couldn't ever find out what happened in the story because I didn't want to talk to them in the supermarket about, you know. No. And so you're in these stories for 20 years and then suddenly you're not in the story. Yeah. And, um, and then the other thing that happened is people got angry. People yeah. were really angry with me for leaving because that's not part of the contract. The contract is that your doctor will be there and they don't leave. And that was quite funny. People were sort of getting angry at me in car parks. <laughs> quite uh, look, uh, it absolutely resonates, uh, um, you know, 25 years in a 40 I still own the practice there um, so I still have a, a quite a quite a strong connection but I'm and I talk to other GPs who have stepped back and are doing locums and and so on and I think that word grief is absolutely right it's like any relationship that uh, changes and you have to step step away from there's a um, you it, it adjusts. That's why I ask about professional identity because um, I think part that's how I I reflected on it was as a rural GP for such a long time, stepping back into a, and now as a, a role as a medical director for a PHO. Um, it was a, a very significant change in in mm. um, the way I see myself or saw myself. I still work in lots of rural practices um, as a, as a locum, but um, the yeah, it's it's. It's, it's interesting to think about. Mm. And also I think um, that, in, that you're part of a team and you actually lose that team in a way that you've worked with. And I think in rural communities, that team is very, um, the team in the primary health care, it's a very solid team because for us, that was the container in which people's stories were held. Because you have to, because you're looking after people who also come to your house for dinner, you have to, you have to contain the story that they're sharing or, you know, the stuff that they're sharing somehow. So the team was the container. So the team, and they couldn't share that stuff outside the team. So it was a very bonded team. But actually, when you leave, you don't necessarily have a social relationship with those people. So you either have to develop a social relationship with them or that's another set of relationships that, that you kind of have grief about really mm. yeah it's really and some of those people you might have worked for for 10 or 15 years or longer it's quite um and i think um you know however much you try not to be grandiose about being a doctor i think um particularly in small towns you are held in a certain regard and you also realise that when you leave, that mm. actually that has been there, even though you don't want to acknowledge it. But I, um, you know, I, 
I also think it's an opportunity to recreate yourself in some other way. And so even though there was grief, I, I don't want to be back where I was. I, I've kind of had some fantastic experiences. Um, and given a huge amount to that community and to those people. And um, the um, I think I, I hugely admire uh, colleagues who are, 30 35 years in in serving yeah. one community um and absolutely uh it's okay it's okay yeah, to yeah. do it for five years or 10 years or 25 yeah. years yeah. um you know it's 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 all right you know you've done you've you we we contribute hugely um and i've become quite interested in having gone from a thing of very long-term relationships sometimes with three or four generations in a family when you start doing locums, then you become interested in, this may be my only encounter with this person. What actually can I do in this encounter that's going to make a difference to their yes. well-being and their life? So I think there's a real skill in the one encounter. And, you know, and I think sometimes as a locum, you can go, oh, it's not really my problem. I can't, you know, I just sort of baff around and the GP can sort it out when they come back. But, if you actually go, oh, there's an opportunity here. Because, you know, I think when people look back on their lives and their crises, they do often remember one encounter. They often remember one moment of kindness or something, one little thing. So I, it doesn't, I don't think it's a lesser thing to be a locum or a short-term worker. I think it's just a different challenge. Yes, really. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I often think about uh, as as a locum. Um, I've had uh, um, patients come and say a, a little bit like the the Catholic priest. I um, I raised a Catholic, and you would you, I would there would be things I would go to confession about it when when we had a locum priest in that I wouldn't go to confession. <laughs> the normal oh, priest there. They um and um uh, the same as a as a locum doctor you know I've I've had people talk to me about incredibly personal things that they've wanted to they've didn't want to talk to their regular GP about because it would change the way that uh, he sees me uh, as a patient you know and I and and there's sort of just just trying this out with you um the because I know I'm only going to see you once um. The, yeah. But you know, this is there's this aspect of my sexuality which I'm exploring. Yeah. You know, something something incredibly personal. Um, the um, uh, so um, it, it's I different. That, it's different. I think that has also um, been happening with the telephone consultations. So since I went back to Takaika three weeks ago to help out because they needed some help. Um, we've been doing telephone consultations. So I've been having telephone consultations with people I've never met. They can't see my face. And, you know, I actually think there's something about the anonymity of that that makes people even more honest than they might be face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like people are downloading their life through this black screen. It absolutely amazes me what people are telling me. <laughs> just, and I think, you know, we spend so much time teaching all about body language and um, all the dynamic that happens in the room with the face-to-face -face consultation. But in fact, something quite profound happens when there's no face-to-face -to -face too. 
I actually really enjoying the telephone consultations. And I, I, I think that some doctors are a bit frightened of them because they feel like they might make a mistake. But I realise when you've been a rural GP, uh, being on call for 20 years and having patients phone you directly, you get very good at telephone assessment. Yes. I mean, you know, it's, it's bread and butter to me to assess something over the phone. So it doesn't feel, I don't feel a discomfort about it. And uh, really, and um, I mean, I, I just, I mean, I, I love ideas and opportunities. So the whole threat of COVID, I think, is creating these incredible opportunities for general practice. I've been a bit frustrated with how slow general practice has been to take up the sort of, um, you know, the telephone consultation, the interaction through the internet. When we went, did you go to the um, talk last year at the conference on, from Babylon? Yes, yes, I did, yes. yes. I mean, I, I thought it was fantastic. And mm. I wanted to enrol as a patient onto this online doctor service because as a patient, it, a general practice is so tedious. You know, mm. you, you have to make a 15-minute appointment during the working day it probably takes you two hours of your day to have the 15-minute appointment. And really, all I needed to do was pick up the phone and talk to the guy, because I know I don't need an examination. And even my 80-year-old mother thought it was ridiculous. You know, she had oxygen, and she had to take her portable oxygen in the taxi to have the 15-minute appointment with the doctor when she said, can't I just email her? I've got an oxygen saturation monitor at home and a BP cuff. I just want to talk to her. <laughs> so I actually think that this has been a most fantastic disruption. Yeah. And I have been absolutely amazed at how GPs have shifted so quickly. And, um, like, it's brought out the best in them. It really brought out the best in them. So I'm, I'm very proud of general practice for just doing it. I think it's really interesting, the conversation that... Uh, that you have with somebody and the um, what's left unsaid is still left unsaid. Um, it's just providing them with the, those little spaces of silence to allow them to share what they're not saying. You know, you can pick it up in, as you say, you can pick it up when you're seeing somebody. And I think video does add that extra yeah, yeah. nuance to the, to the, to the, to the communication, which is, which is really important apart from being able to see, what the rash looks like or you know how, yeah. how big the um the the the, um, the laceration is the um you there's something about 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 that little extra bit that you get from from a video that which is important but you can still pick it up from the tone of voice and from allowing the silences in the way that you communicate um i can sit in a room with somebody and close down the conversation and through my own body language and the speed that which, which I, with, with, with which I speak. Um, and equally, I can draw things out of people um, just by mm. taking a little mm. bit more time, being a little bit more slower and using yeah, yeah. silence. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the biggest problem I've found in the um, telephone consultations is that we end up sometimes talking over each other because you don't get the cue that someone's about to speak. It's really weird. That's the worst problem. So I'll start to speak and the patient will simultaneously start to speak. It's quite tricky. 
Um, but it's absolutely true. I think there's some intensity to the listening that is picked up through the phone. Mm. Um, that, that isn't being conveyed with the body. And the other thing that's quite interesting that you can do, because sometimes, because I'm seeing all people I've never met before, so sometimes they're really complicated, this being a high needs practice. You know, someone's just had, you know, a lung transplant, and I'm going, oh my God, you know. Yeah. So, or they've got multiple kind of things going on. So, um, I, rather than hefting to sort of work that out in the 15 minutes, I go, look, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and look at your notes and I'm going to ring you back later on. Yeah. And um, that actually takes a huge amount of pressure off me. Um, and it's, it's sort of a better service in a way because I'm kind of, um, well, I'm giving myself some space to think about the complicated problem instead of fudging my way through it under pressure. Yes. And I'm sure the patients really appreciate the, the thinking time that yeah. you're giving them as well. And, you know, they, yeah. um, uh, you know, we will, we will say that in the course of a ordinary, you know, nine to five face to face consultation and say, look, you know, I, I need to, I need to go away and have a think. I need to talk to, to some colleagues about you. Can you make mm. another appointment to come back to me, you know, next week? Um, yeah. the, and, um, but the, um, the ability to say, yeah, I'm just going to go away and have a think and a cup of tea and um, have a look at, um, at the, yeah. the broader picture here uh, and then I'll give you a call back. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's fantastic. So those are some of the things that you would hope that we would continue on with. Um, uh, oh, well, I think the only, stumbling block, the only stumbling block is the money. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, there's a whole discussion about this, about whether, um, well, are there ways in which the patient can pay before they're seen or immediately. We don't really have very good systems for that. Yeah. Um, or do we create a membership scheme where you pay a certain amount a week or a year for to be in that practice and you get all the services you require? Yeah. So, um, or is it a little bit of both? Yeah. So, um, but I think that, now that we've started doing the telephone consultations and people are having trouble being paid, that those, I mean, there's nothing like a crisis to create innovation. The innovation is happening as we speak. So yeah. it'll be happening quickly if it involves money. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and, you know, there's really simple things like every time I do, do a telephone consultation, I um, send a text to the patient, which has got the bank account number and the fee. Yeah, and it comes straight after I've hung up, and I don't know how many people of the, how many of them pay, and um, but it seems to me that that's just the same as them going to the desk. Um, and you know, certainly for me as a patient, I want to pay, so I find it so irritating when I might order a repeat prescript, and I might get a text saying it's gone to the pharmacy, but it doesn't tell me how much it is. Mm. So, or the bank account number. So then I have to wait for something to come in the post. I mean, all these systems need to be. I don't know about your GP, but my GP adds a $5 fee for sending out the thing in the post as well. Oh, I know. That's so <laughs> irritating. I had my phone there. I would have paid it there and then. <laughs> so... You know, I'm, being, I'm being slightly uncharitable. My GP quite often tries not to charge me and um, because I'm a doctor as well. And um, Oh, yes, that's a problem too. That is a problem, so when yeah. you don't get the text, you don't know whether they haven't charged you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
they have to grow up. So and then yeah, you have no. to buy them a present, and that's yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather pay actually. Yeah, yeah. Box of box of beer for my GP. Sorry, I hope he doesn't listen to this. That'd be it'd be terrible if he does. Just in in terms of things that because it is it is stressful, I think, for practices and for the for the teams, and to be working in this in this environment, I've had to make these sort of changes. Um, the have you any advice or have you seen ways that your, your own practices, the, the, um, the teams that you work with have, have adapted to that and how, how they're dealing with the, the physical, the mental sort of stresses of, of making this change, this very rapid change? Well, I think most practices have been a bit quieter. So although that there's a drop in income, it does leave a bit of space for making the adjustment. So um, I think that's good. I mean, it's interesting. I um, am. I think you're also on the Facebook page, GPs for GPs. Is that yes. Right? And um, and I'm also on New Zealand Women in Medicine Facebook page, which you're probably not on, Joe. And um, I have to say that I GPs to GPs. Sometimes I, in the past, I haven't liked it because there's been a little bit of sort of complaining about things. And mm -hmm. I'm the sort of person that likes a solution, not a problem. Mm -hmm. I like to create a solution. I don't want to sit in the problem for too long. So, but that that Facebook page has come into its own in the last month. Oh my God, it has been fantastic. They've been sharing ideas. Someone says our practice is doing this. Our practice is trying this. You know, it's absolutely fantastic. And so most of, and then all those ideas get fed back into other practices. Mm. So um, because there's been multiple things to try and deal with, um, not just the telephone consultations, but the infection control, how are we going to do flu vaccines? What are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? And people are sharing all those things and sharing ideas. So, and also... Um, there's a reasonable amount of um, of kind of support and collegiality in that as well. So I have in the last month enjoyed those Facebook groups, but also it really got a lot out of conversations with other doctors and more than I have in the past. So because it feels like it's felt to me like I, I've been watching this, this pandemic rolling before we even got to lockdown. I've been quite obsessed by it. Yes, yes. And, um, and so you feel like you're in this sort of slightly surreal world where the general public don't quite get what's coming. And, and then there's special implications for us because we are potentially at risk of exposure. And um, that is a new gig for doctors. And although doctors don't really express that out loud, it's sort of there in the anxiety about the PPE. I think most of us are going, oh, you know, I'm actually putting myself at risk. And did I sign up for this? Well, actually, I probably did. And um, it's just bad luck that it's happened. And I have to actually be prepared to front up. And so, um, and that's huge. I mean, you know, I'm in my late 50s, so... 
I could be in the getting into a riskier group. And and then I read all the things about, you know, the deaths in Italy and people dying at home. And I think, well, if that happened in New Zealand and people were dying at home, they couldn't get into hospital, then my risk of exposure goes really high. And what I do in that situation in a crisis is I go to the worst case scenario, which is the, you know, virus infested houses all over South Dunedin that I have to go into. And I go, well, how would I manage that? And so I bought a box of gloves and my partner found the last plastic visor helmet thing in Dunedin. And um, I feel okay now. I feel like I can sort of more or less protect myself. So, but when I think about the economic and social future and the future of the world politically, like, I can't even, it's just a fog. I can't even imagine what our world's going to look like in a week or a month or six months. So I think there's this really weird thing going on where, um, that is very stressful, and I'm quite, because um, I'm sort of a realist, I, um, I'm i quite shaken by it, yes. because I can't make a picture. I can't make a picture of how it's going to look, and, and I kind of go, oh, well, the best case scenario is that we're all back to normal by Christmas, and we're all flying around the world, and nothing happened, but actually, I don't think that's anywhere near what it's going to be like, and it's very hard to take in and even imagine that. And so we're all on this, what someone called a squeezing tension. We've got this squeezing tension over us. And um, and so I, I kind of, I've had some bad moments actually in the last yeah. few um, And what I, I've just, I'm really interested in observing that in me. So to start with, I became quite irritable not at work, but at home. And I haven't been like that for a long time since I was a practice owner. I was, you know, I haven't. And, and I thought, oh my God, what's happened to me? I'm, I've become sort of clippity. And, and I think it was the sort of, um, well, at that stage, the sort of sense that it might happen in New Zealand. And yes. I remember the marvellous... Um, there was a marvellous, I think he was an emergency department doctor in Wellington who said he felt like he was standing on the beach and the tsunami wave had pulled out and the beach was bare and he was waiting for the wave. Yes. And there was that sensation. And, yeah, it's it's yeah. completely quiet. And, and there is this very strange thing going on at the moment where there's both this tension and it's incredibly peaceful. Yeah. Because there's nothing in the diary. And there's no, um, so we're not, we're sort of at home. And, and, it, and you know, you, you, we went out one night, because oh, I couldn't get to sleep one night because I was feeling quite agitated. This was quite early on. And I said, oh, let's just walk up the hill. Mm. So we walked up Signal Hill Road in the dark. There was not a car anywhere. And it was Saturday night. And the lights of Dunedin, but there was no sound. It was weird. It was yes. completely silent. Yeah. So these are sort of very strange. There is a very strange peacefulness happening too. And realising how crazy and busy our lives are. 
and the sort of um, yeah, it's quite it's a fascinating thing to be in. I, I had a, a night where I couldn't sleep and I started reading comments from colleagues overseas and their experiences. And I was part of a, another social media group which sort of links, uh, links people across the world in, in rural um, communities. Yeah. And, and I, it probably started at about midnight and it was a, probably about half past three when I'd finished reading all of these different stories. And I was, got myself incredibly um, agitated and concerned about what we were facing. This was quite early on. Yeah. The and um, it was interesting. I w attended a meeting at, for for work at eight in the morning, and I obviously expressed some of my anxieties fairly forcefully um, uh, in that meeting because I had a number of colleagues uh, over the next few hours reaching out to me and saying, "Are you okay?" Uh, and then uh, somebody took me to one side and said, "Look, actually, what you need to do is to." switch everything off and um go for a walk you know don't don't think about this do do something completely different um and by that time my head had caught up with where i was i was thinking and i'd rationalized it um and i was saying oh, i really i don't need to do that i i know that you know we're we're okay with it. but i did i followed the advice and switched everything off i went for a walk i read a i read a book and it was probably, it was about two hours into that, two and a half, three hours into that, that I think my head and my heart were both aligned again. And I was able to celebrate what we were starting to do with the, with the lockdown and with the shift to virtual, virtual care um, for, uh, for, the, for the country. And um, it was a really interesting experience to, mm. um, uh, to, um, and I've, I've um, passed that on to others. That's, that's been my, my little piece of advice um, to others to, to say, you know, at least once a week, have 24 hours where you don't think about, try not to think about this, try and not, not link into social media to, to, um, to go, go analog yeah. and, um, you know, go for a walk without your headphones in. Um, I think a lot of us go <laughs> the, um, and it, uh, I remember seeing a cartoon once where the, the mother is comforting the adolescent um, who's um, uh, um, has hasn't got his headphones in at the time and, and saying it's okay, dear. Um, it's a thought. Um, put, your, <laughs> put your headphones back in, and they won't happen again. Um, and uh, so, yeah, go for a walk without your headphones in. That that'd be my piece mm. of advice. Hey, do you have any? A final comment or um, uh, source of inspiration for us uh, to share to to help. I mean, not just at this time, but just generally. Um, you know, being a being a GP working in healthcare is is quite stressful. Um, is the uh, I know there's a, a whole range of things that you, which you'd you'd probably want to share, um, but is there something key at the moment? That we could link in the show notes. How long have we been going? We're going for hours, have we? Oh, great. Um, oh, yes. So um, I just first of all wanted to agree about turning the phone off. So I make my. Sometimes I don't look at it in the morning mm -hmm. um, because if I open my phone as soon as I wake up, then I'm back into that energy. 
Yeah. Uh, sometimes I might lock it in the morning and then I switch it off all day. Uh, because at the moment, I can do exactly the same thing. I can pick my phone up to look for an email and an hour and a half later, I've I've done the Guardian and the New York Times and the, the Facebook and it, it, the energy's gone into my body and mm. it's really... Um, at the same time, I think... Um, uh, what I think about doctors is that we are so um, enculturated to push on and disregard the feeling and disregard what the body's telling what our body's telling us because we're told to be disconnected from our body yes. to not even notice we need to go to the loo or eat or do you know what I mean? Or yes, yeah. And, you know, that we're kind of disconnected. So what I've learned in the last few years is more than anything is to listen to the body and acknowledge the feelings. So the feeling of being disturbed at the moment is actually a reasonable feeling to have. It's not something to suppress or pretend it isn't happening. It's actually a real thing. And it's much better to put out the feeling. So it's much better for me to tell a group of GPs that two weeks ago on Thursday night, I howled. I just cried and cried and cried. And I have no reason. I don't even know what it was. Mm. And I periodically have this kind of sense of heaviness in my chest. It's not all the time, but I'll just be doing something like, walking around the block and I'll see the teddies in the windows and I'll think, oh my God, I'm going to cry. Mm. And it's free floating. It's not, it's not actually, it's just, we've all got a lot of feelings at the moment. And I think we need to, the best thing is to actually be honest about them and put them out, I think. And they fluctuate. I mean, yes. I can be highly functional as well, but um but I think we're going to get into trouble if we soldier on pretending everything's all right because we've got a lot of pressure on us as well. Because the thing is, we are in the experience. It's not like the patients are having an experience that we're helping them with. We are in the same experience. So it's a bit like the earthquake and the doctors in the earthquake. You know, they're also in the earthquake. They're yeah. also having the trouble with their home. They're also having the stress of the earthquake. So... There's good and bad things about that. So, you know, I could tell you to do more yoga or work, work more, but I, what I want people to do most of all is to listen to their bodies, listen to um, the feelings that are coming up and put them out, actually. And I, I now just listen to my body on everything and I go, right, what's the best thing for me to do right now? And I'll, I'll go through a thing. I might say, shall I pick up that book? Shall I play a game of words? Shall I go into the garden? And my body tells me which is the right answer. It actually tells me, oh, you need to go in the garden now. That's going to be the best thing. You know, it's a kind of... Um... So, yeah, and I mean, I, um, I just love general practice because I just love the patients. I just cannot believe the conversations I get to have in a day. Last week, I... We had a number of patients without cars 
who couldn't come for their flu vaccines. They were mainly in council flats around Dunedin, and then a lot of them also had just come out of hospital or they needed blood or they needed some other thing. So I volunteered to visit about six or seven older people in their homes. I've never met any of them. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, they were fantastic. I mean, it's just so incredible going into people's homes. They're homes you'd never go into. And just experiencing the life that people live. And, you know, the older people are actually quite relaxed about the virus. I mean, they're, they're being careful. But when you're over 80, you've kind of lived long enough to know that these things pass. Or I'm not actually that important. And if I die, well, you know, do you know what I mean? They have a whole different uh, a sort of view of the world. So I was quite soothed by them, actually. Mm in a way. That was a fantastic morning. I also went into a few houses that were indescribably awful, but, that, but you know, the people in them were beautiful too, actually, in their own way. So I love the people, and um, it's kind of fun. It's fun. Mm. And, you know, there's an intellectual challenge in it too, but it all, Always there's the people. You know, sometimes there isn't much intellectual challenge, but there's always the people. And um, and I, I kind of, I think I, 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 I like to, I can move between the big picture and the detail. So sometimes when we're in the detail, we lose a sense of what we're actually trying to do here. And particularly when you're dealing with people who are with poverty and trauma and, you know, there's a cross-cultural issue and, you know, then you kind of go, well, the glycated hemoglobin's been 140 for five years, so I'm probably not going to change that right now. Yeah. What is the most important thing here? The most important thing is that this person leaves my presence wagging their tail. Yeah. This is my new thing. It's an it's it's a, wagging your tail is a sort of it's a sort of surrogate visual surrogate for improving people's well-being. Yes, yes. And um, it's the sort of idea that they might leave feeling a little better or a little more empowered or a little, you know. Sometimes with the clients I've worked with now, the best thing that I can do is be a person who t- treats them with respect. You know, that might be. That might be all I can do, you know, because they're not going to take my blood pressure pills. <laughs> you know, it's kind of so. Um, I'm I'm kind of interested in that that part of it, and it brings out the best in me to bring out the best in them. Actually, so I think that medicine changes us. Yeah. Medicine's made me a much better person than I would have been. Actually. Well, I feel like I'm wagging my tail now listening to you. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> That's a lovely, lovely note um, the, to, to, to draw to a finish on. Um, but do you have a, a final thing that you want to leave us with? Well, I was going to say um, the big picture thing I live by is really in, in my job is, is Ian McWinney, who said... Yeah. In the 1980s, um, in the end, people are healed by love. 
and um, I I hold on to that when I'm stuck actually yeah because we have fantastic tools in medicine we have the most amazing surgeries and medications and all those things but they're not always enough and we often see people who we don't have a solution for within that model. Um, this is from um, Glenn Cahoon, a, a book which is a must read for all GPs called Late Love. It's only 60 pages. Mm -hmm. Sometimes doctors need saving as much as their patients. And um, this is the last bit, which is about um, really the situation where you have someone suffering in front of them and you don't have a medical tool. And he says, and if nothing else helps, I might just have to cling on, take a deep breath and let the storyteller know I think they're awesome. And have I told them lately that they're awesome? And have they never realised that they're awesome? And if only they knew how awesome they were. Until with a steady slap, 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 Lap. The sea closes sweetly over both our heads, and all we thought we knew at last becomes all we thought we knew. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you. Uh, thank you for this time. Well, and I, I do, you know, I think that having a project around the joy of medicine is that is a beautiful thing, actually. So I just encourage you on that path. If you're enjoying the New Zealand General Practice podcast, please rate it where you found it and share it with your friends. If you want to know more about general practice in New Zealand, the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners has a website with all the advice you need about vocational training. If you're looking to work in New Zealand or just want to share what brings you joy in your work, you can contact me via Twitter I am at a Portuguese GP, or find me, Dr. Joe Scott Jones, on LinkedIn. Kakite ano. See you next time.